Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. So the last time we met, we finished the Torah. And I mentioned that its final book, Deuteronomy, is an ending and a beginning. An ending because it is the last of the five books of Moses, a beginning because it introduces the former prophets. In a nutshell, Deuteronomy performs a crucial role as the authoritative reinterpretation of the first four books of the Torah. Remember, its laws pertain to a different contextual situation than to those of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. The law in those books pertain to covenant life in the wilderness. The law in Deuteronomy shifts the focus to covenant life in the land of promise. So this new section of the former prophets, while reliant on the Torah as a whole, is especially dependent on the law of Deuteronomy. And that's because these books take place in the promised land. So what books make up the former prophets? Well, it's Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings. And while there is a lot going on in these books, I'm going to focus on one emphasis seen throughout. Across these books, we see an exact correspondence of prophecy and fulfillment. If the people obey the covenant, they possess the land. If they don't, they lose it. You might call this emphasis a theological interpretation of Israel's history in the promised land, from the conquest to the exile. Today, we're going to take a look at the first book of the former prophets, the book of Joshua. So, Joshua. The book of Joshua is the first of the former prophets. It is dependent upon the Torah, like I mentioned the whole of the former prophets is, but Joshua also forms the introduction to the continuing story that many scholars call the Deuteronomistic history. It's like Deuteronomy's history. So the former prophets and the Deuteronomistic history, they're the same thing. And in Joshua's pages, we witness the conquest of the land of Canaan and its division among the 12 tribes of Israel. So in this whole book, what we see is, once again, the conquest of Canaan and its division among the 12 tribes of Israel. So, first, we're going to take our regular hundred or a thousand foot view this is the section where you really zero in on it 
Jot this down in your notebook. Later, the 100-foot view will just let that wash over us. So, the 1,000-foot view. The book of Joshua has four main sections. The first being the entry into the promised land. The second being the conquest of the land of Canaan. The third, Joshua's allotment and distribution of the land to the individual tribes of Israel. And finally, the early years of the settlement and Joshua's will and testament. So, if there's a main purpose in this book, it is to show the fulfilling of the promise of God to give his people the land of Canaan. Finally, the last thing I'm going to say about this thousand-foot view is that it's important to note that the period of the book of Joshua is envisioned as an ideal period in the life of the covenant. The conquest of the cities of Canaan is presented as swift, unified, and complete, totally complete. This is the paradigm of God's way with obedient Israel. The conditions of obedience have been met, and the result is complete and total victory as God fulfills his promise to the very letter. Yet, as we'll see, there is also a purposeful tension in this book. For here and there, we also see that the conquest was not, in fact, swift, unified, or complete. And this is because the people of God did not, in fact, live up to the ideal. And we'll see this made very clear in the next book of the former prophets, the book of Judges. But at times, even in Joshua, the conquest is slow, or at least the allotment of the lands to the tribes is slow, gradual, and future-oriented. And this is because they did not, in fact, wholeheartedly obey. So the tension between the ideal and actual Israel is not smoothed out in this book. It is purposely left to be a part of the text. So all that said, we're going to move into our 100-foot view. Just let this kind of wash over you. So the book of Joshua begins with the installation of Joshua as the leader in Moses' place. The Lord calls him to be strong and courageous. Now this means not just to be strong as in being buff, although it, it certainly includes that. But what God is telling Joshua is not to shrink from taking the Canaanite cities. But he also means that Joshua is to obey the commandments. So don't shrink from taking the Canaanite cities, but also a part of being strong and courageous is obeying. And this call is not just to Joshua, but it is made to the people of God as a whole. And essentially, they respond to this call by saying, we will. And for the most part, in this book, they do. So this is the very beginning 
of that period of obedient Israel. Now, the story of the conquest begins with Joshua spending, sending spies into Canaan. Now, if you remember back to the book of Numbers, we can think of that other reconnaissance mission. And we can remember the outcome of that mission. It was failure. But this time around, with the cooperation of an unlikely Canaanite prostitute, the spies come back confident and the people of God are poised to enter the land. We'll come back to that uh, Canaanite prostitute. Her name is Rahab in later books. So after this, uh, the people of God and Joshua set out. And just like at the Red Sea in Exodus, Joshua and the Israelites miraculously cross the Jordan River. And this is another good sign for the conquest that is to come. After they're crossed to, to the other side and they obey the law by circumcising those who haven't been circumcised and they uh, essentially uh, do a Passover, again, they're obeying the law. At this point, Joshua encounters a very mysterious figure, a man with a sword who claims to be the commander of the Lord's armies. He tells Joshua to take off his shoes, too, for he's standing on holy ground. And if you've been paying attention in the last couple books, you would remember that this very same call was made to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus. Yet again, another good sign that the promises of God are to be fulfilled. At this point in the book, we come to the actual conquest itself. The people of Israel march on Jericho. And, if you're reading closely, they, they seem to barely lift a finger. They walk around the city for seven days, make a loud shout, and in an instant, God brings down the great city walls. And without these fortifications, the people of God easily win the day. The battle is over, and it is obvious that God fights on behalf of his people. And we're left wondering, was it the mysterious man, the commander of the Lord's armies, who took these walls down? Now, after the city is taken, however we see the first instance of what's known as carom warfare, or what some scholars call the ban. And carom warfare is the total destruction of the peoples and the goods of a city. Now, carom warfare, or the ban, happened, or at least was bragged to have happened, in a whole bunch of cities or nations in the ancient Near East. And sometimes this happened, or it didn't actually happen, but it was bragged we wiped out everyone, even non-combatants. So in other words, according to this text, the people of Israel take no prisoners. In fact, not only did they kill the inhabitants of the land, but the text says that they also take out the animals too. 
And all of this is presented as not just some uh, lust for a violence, but in accordance with a call to wipe out the Canaanites found in Deuteronomy chapter 20. We will come back to the ban, this disturbing Karim warfare, uh, for an extended period when we reach the conclusion. Now, after taking Jericho, the people of God march on another city, the city of Ai. But unlike at Jericho, this fight fails miserably. And this is because a man by the name of Achan had secretly kept plunder from the city of Jericho. And here we see one of the few exceptions to the ideal of obedient Israel during the period of Joshua. Here we also see the Deuteronomic impulse for Israel to stay clear away from all that might contaminate or corrupt them, because that's how the text presents it. The Canaanites themselves, their culture, their goods, they might lead the Israelites to idolatry. So stay clear away from them. So in the text, after Achan and his family are punished, Israel's loss is no more. They are victorious. And right after this, because the covenant was shown to be broken, Joshua then decides to lead his people once again in a covenant renewal ceremony. It's as if it's like making up for what Achan had just done. And it was remembering the covenant, remembering the law of God. After the ceremony, though, uh, Israel once again falls. Or it's not quite as dramatic, but they fall victim to a ruse this time. The people of a city nearby to Ai, the city of Gibeon, they hear that the Israelites are conquering all those around them. And so they decide to sue for peace. They know they can't win, so why not make a treaty? Only the Gibeonites know that the Israelites would not make peace with the inhabitants of Canaan. So they're crafty. They pretend to be from far away, and they dress like they're very poor. So when Joshua meets them, he agrees. Let's sign this peace treaty. And he does all this before finding out that these people are from the land that's been promised to them. So he finds out that he's been deceived. And because he made this pact without looking into things, uh, the text presents it that Israel was required to obey the treaty. They were not allowed to take the city. And the text also presents it as, this is why the Gibeonites are around you today. So soon after signing the treaty, the surrounding southern Canaanite cities, they decide we're going to attack Gibeon because they've made this alliance with Israel. So once Gibeon is attacked, Israel, having just made a treaty with Gibeon, was obligated to protect them. So being obligated by the treaty, they do set out to protect the Gibeonites. And in so doing, they 
track down each and every one of the armies that came after Gideon or Gibeon, and as they track them down, they destroy each and every one and take over the cities of southern Canaan. So as a result of standing up for Gibeon, they end up taking all the cities to the south of Canaan. So once again, God had fought on Israel's behalf. They had won a battle that they shouldn't have won, and he's handed over the land of promise to his obedient people. After these conquests, the Israelites proceed to northern Canaan. They had essentially taken out central Canaan with Jericho and Ai. After following the armies that attacked Gibeon, they had taken possession of southern Canaan. So now what do they do? They move to northern Canaan, where here too they take on multiple armies at once. Once again, the Lord fights for obedient Israel. We're left wondering, is the commander of the angel armies fighting for them? And the implicit notion is yes. And with this victory, all of Canaan, central, southern, and northern, was subject to Joshua's leadership. The whole of the land of Canaan was now in the possession of the people of God. Obedient Israel had received the promise of God to the very letter. Again, the fulfillment God made to Abraham way back in Genesis, uh, and the fulfillment of the the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis, and the fulfillment of the covenant and the promise God made to Moses in Exodus and beyond, it's been fulfilled. The people of God have the land. And why? Because the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant have been met. They've been obedient. Now, the second half of the book of Joshua, which is really, again, it's about the allotment and distribution of this land that they've just conquered. It's very long and it's very detailed. And many of us would find it very boring. But to ancient Israel, it's very important because, again, this distribution of Canaan makes clear that the fulfillment of the promise of God has been realized. Um, The details that we encounter are very important because, again, God has fulfilled his promise to the very letter. He's dotted every I and crossed every T. But again, while much of Joshua celebrates this ideal, toward the very end of the book, there are hints that reality was actually less than ideal. Despite conquest, allotment, and distribution, some tribes are uh, they're unable to dislodge the Canaanites from their land. It's made apparent that the full possession of the land of Canaan is more future and oriented. So all of this keeps the potential that we'll see realized in the next couple books uh, for idolatry. It keeps the possibility of idolatry alive. 
And as we'll see, this idolatry will ensnare the Israelites in the book of Judges. So the book of Joshua comes to a close with the book's protagonist giving his last will and testament, very much like Moses did at the end of Deuteronomy. In it, he tells the Israelites to continue to be strong and courageous. Remember, we heard that at the very beginning of the book, and we hear that now at the end. It's bookended with this notion of being strong and courageous. And now now that they have kept or taken possession of the land, being strong and courageous first and foremost means do not waver in keeping obedience to the law. But not only that, it also means, or one of the ways of being obedient to the law is to keep distance from their idolatrous neighbors, from the Canaanites who remain in their midst. And the ways of doing that are to refuse them alliance, but also, and scandalously, rightfully scandalously in our day, refusing them intermarriage. Again, we're going to get to that at the conclusion in just a second. Now, at the end of Joshua's address, all Israel says yes, and a covenant is made at Shechem, just like a covenant's made at the end of Deuteronomy. Joshua dies and is buried in the land. But at the end of Joshua, despite the fact that the period of Joshua is presented as this ideal, obedient period, we get hints that Joshua does not think the people of God will stay in this obedient state. So, in conclusion, I think the one question that we all should have and need to address is how do we make sense of the Game of Thrones moments in this book? How do we appropriate the devastating call to kill all the inhabitants of the cities of Canaan. Now, I mentioned that the Israelites uh, enacted the ban or carom warfare after the battle at Jericho, but full disclosure here, the book of Joshua says that after each and every battle, Israel carried out the ban. They carried out the total destruction of the enemy. And this doesn't just include of the soldiers, this also includes non-combatants. And the hardest part of all of this is that it is presented as the commandment of God. Now, I want to be sure, there are qualifications to this. Remember, at the beginning of the book, Rahab and her family are exceptions to this rule. Rahab is the Canaanite prostitute at Jericho, she cooperates with the Israelites, and they make an agreement with her, and she becomes part of Israel. Two, the people of Gibeon are also spared. Though we have to note that, remember, um, it was really only because of their trickery, of their uh, deceiving Israel into making them think that they weren't from the land of promise. Finally, even Joshua makes clear that not 
all of the Canaanites are in fact killed. Because, as we talked about, some Israelite tribes can't completely dislodge them from their allotted territory. Territory, um, And, you know, hint, hint, or uh, a spoil of a preview, but we're going to see the Canaanites in great numbers in the books to come, even the next one, even Judges. So, that said, how have Christians understood and appropriated the notion of the ideal in Joshua in the history of the church? How have we appropriated Karim warfare? Well, some have emphasized that the call to destroy all is obviously hyperbolic in Joshua. The Canaanites, as we have mentioned, have, they've not been done away with. They are very much in the land. Proponents of this view point out that Karim warfare, as I mentioned earlier, it's not unique to ancient Israel. It is a feature of Israel's contemporary ancient Near Eastern neighbors as well. When the ban is said to have been carried out, it is most often a monarch's brag. Uh, So it's an exaggeration. And we see this, I'll give you one example, uh, the 9th century Moabite stone, uh, the infamous Moabite stone, says that the Moabite king Mesha put Israel to the Karim. Which, I mean, it's, it's very obvious that he didn't because... Israelites are still around even today. If he had really killed every single member of the combatants and non-combatants, well, we wouldn't be having this talk at all. Now, other Christians emphasize that in all likelihood, Israel never did to Canaan what the book of Joshua depicts. They'll say the book of Judges is a more realistic picture. So most scholars see Israel's possession of these lands as slow, gradual, and somewhat peaceful. Um, Now, proponents of this view may touch on points we made earlier. The book is presented as an ideal paradigm and not as an an actuality. So let that do that, (laughs) do with that what you will. Still, other Christians talk about Karim warfare or the ban as the inbreaking of eschatological judgment. In the Torah, particularly in Deuteronomy, but also in Joshua, the people of Canaan are presented as morally bankrupt. Mass rape and child sacrifice are two of their habitual crimes that are mentioned. Now, according to this view, Karam warfare is God enacting just judgment through Israel on the wicked. So to proponents of this view, what we find in Karim warfare is God bringing about justice. Still more Christians say that the language of the ban is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for rigorous adherence to the Lord and separation from all other forms of religion, which we must note, this is in accord with the Deuteronomistic impulse throughout all of the former prophet books. The real emphasis is exclusive loyalty to Adonai and full separation from anything that might lead to idolatry. 
And then, of course, there are the Christians who tend not to like Joshua much at all. In a letter to a John Beversilius, I cannot say that name. It's <laughs> You can do a Google search, just type in C.S. Lewis letter about the book of Joshua, and this will come up. But C.S. Lewis writes to this person that, and I'll quote, On my view, one must apply something of the same sort of explanation to, say, the atrocities and treacheries of Joshua. I see the grave danger we run by doing so, but the dangers of believing in a God whom we cannot but regard as evil, and then, in a merely terrified flattery calling him good and worshipping him, is still greater danger. Lewis continues, The ultimate question is whether the doctrine of the goodness of God or that of the inerrancy of Scripture is to prevail when they conflict. I think the doctrine of the goodness of God is the more certain of the two. Indeed, only that doctrine renders this worship of him obligatory or even permissible. End quote. Now, the letter goes on, but you get the idea. And again, if you want to see it in, in greater depth, do a, a simple Google search. Uh, it's a compelling letter, uh, and that is one of the views that have been held in the history of the church. Now, finally, and the last of the views I'll present, is the one that's been held for most of the history of the Christian church. For most Christians... Have, an inter have interpreted Joshua allegorically. One way to interpret it in this way would be to understand that God's fight against the Canaanites on behalf of his people is actually the fight of God against the powers of sin and death that oppress them. Now, when I say it's God's fight against sin and death. I don't mean it's God's fight against your individual sins, but it's God's fight against capital S sin, capital D death. The, the, this realm, this power, this force that opposes the people of God. According to this allegorical view, God is against this so much that he cannot let it abide. And again, I touched on this a bit of, a few weeks ago. Um, uh, when I was talking about the Exodus and God's judgment against the Egyptians. And I, I taught about this, if you were here last year, in our atonement class. So this would essentially be what might be referred to as the Christus victor of the Old Testament. Christ as victor against sin and death um, in the Old Testament. According to this view, God is so implacably against injustice and oppression that he will not compromise with it. In fact, he must do away with it in its entirety because to make peace with the powers that oppress his people is no good news at all. The rest in the land that Joshua emphasizes then is when God's people are free from the bondage of sin and death and in life-giving communion with him and other people. In this sense of scripture, Joshua, and even that mysterious commander of the Lord's army whom we met, are understood as types of Christ. Types of Christ 
who defeat death and deliver and liberate God's people. Now, in any case, no matter what view you hold or what uh, assortment or conglomeration of the views that I just presented, um, Jesus makes clear that Christians are to turn the other cheek, that Christians are to love their enemies. So any notion of carom warfare for Christians is refused. St. Paul also makes clear that there is no longer any Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. So what that means is that any kind of racial discrimination or a contemporary refusal of intermarriage is precluded from the start. It's there's a, a, a big fat no is given to that. Finally, St. Paul also emphasizes that we do, in fact, have a battle to fight. But our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this dark world. Our war, therefore, is not against other people, It is against the powers that oppress God's people. So while I may find a number of the views I just presented convincing, uh, I've, I've laid my cards on the table. I like the allegorical view, the view that most of the church held until the Reformation. And I think a lot of Reformed and Lutheran type have really latched onto in more recent centuries. This helps us to understand that God does, in fact, have a battle to fight on behalf of his people. But it's not on those people, the people we don't like. God is for those people, too. What God is against is the powers of sin and death that oppress those whom he loves. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal Sanchi Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.